Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 55, which you'll find on page 557 of your pew Bibles, if you'd like to take that and join with me as we read Psalm 55. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught at the voice of the enemy, at the stares of the wicked, for they bring down suffering upon me and revile me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and storm. Confuse the wicked, O Lord. Confound their speech, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the grave for evil finds lodging among them. But I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He ransoms me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned forever, will hear them and afflict them, men who never change their ways and have no fear of God. My companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His speech is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. But you, O oh God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of corruption. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men will not live out half their days. But as for me, I trust in you. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. You know that we are troubled, you know that our hearts feel pain and anguish, you know that we are betrayed and surrounded by evil. But you invite us, Lord, to call on you 
and to cast our burdens on you and you promise to sustain us and save us and we thank you for those promises we ask Lord that you uh, have your hand on Mark and fill him with your spirit this morning as he comes to share with us uh, what you have laid on his heart that you open our ears and hearts to receive and to learn and to draw us closer to you in Jesus name Amen. thank you Kate for that After she got her assignment to uh, to read uh, for this morning, and after she read over it, she texted me and she said, "I just want to make sure this is the right passage because it's pretty heavy." And uh, so I appreciated that attention to detail and uh, also the bravery that it took to uh, read such a passage as that. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to Psalm 55. In just a few minutes, we'll look at every one of those verses that. Uh, uh, Kate just read. Um, as we begin, let's keep in mind that it is part of the human condition to suffer. Which is to say, suffering is common to us all. It's often not our fault, though sometimes it is. And some people suffer more than others. In historical and geographical comparison, on the average and by any per capita measurement and typological analysis, just about all other people in all other places and at all other times have suffered more than we here in North America in the year of our Lord, 2022. And yet we all suffer, every one of us in our own ways and in our own times. So there's a sense in which, while my suffering is not your suffering and vice versa, we are united in the temporal truth that in this life on this earth, all of us suffer because suffering is a fundamental and shared aspect of the fallen human condition. Among the clearest distinctions between biblical Christian faith and practice, from other approaches to faith, and by that I mean less than biblical and less than historically Christian forms of faith and practice, is our understanding and our perseverance through suffering. Biblical Christianity does not teach, and we do not believe that we should or that we must or that we will be delivered from suffering, any or all forms of suffering whether because of Christ's suffering and work on the cross or because of the quality and quantity of our faith, so long as we live in these corrupted bodies and so long as we live on this corrupted earth, we will suffer. And suffering is a part of the biblical Christian promise, both that we will suffer and that God will reward those who suffer well. Do you remember Romans 8, 16 and 17? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, you might be shocked to learn that this is not a sermon on sin or suffering, either one. But we do have one or two or five of those coming up, and it's another of our questions that one or more of you offered as a sermon suggestion. In fact, a truly biblical Christian understanding of suffering from its cause to its spread, from its purposes to its reduction, its relief, and its ultimate removal in the new heavens and the new earth. This understanding of suffering will go a long way to giving us God's revelation about all things in this world. Suffering is a fundamental part of it. But for now, we do need a brief summary of the Bible's teaching on sin and its integral relationship to suffering. Because much of our praying is devoted to the subject of suffering. And not only ours, but much praying in the Bible is related to suffering, including our passage for this morning. So here it is. Everything wrong in the universe and in the world and in the heavenlies and in our bodies and in our minds and in our relationships and in the church is due to sin. Original sin, volitional sin, personal sin, ongoing sin, and so all suffering results from someone's sin. Now it may be our own sin, it may be our parents' sin, it may be our siblings' sin, it may be the sin of someone else related to us biologically or through marriage, it may be the sin of society or of culture, it may be the sin of our country and our nation, our peoples, it may be the fault of Adam as are all forms of death, disease and disorder, by one man did sin come into the world and through it death, Romans 5. But whatever it is, and from wherever it comes, and by whomever it originates, all suffering is the direct and or indirect result of some sin somewhere at some time. And unfortunately, suffering is here to stay. So long as these heavens and this earth and these bodies and these minds and these hearts and souls persist, and to that we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, as we continue, let's remember the question that got us going to begin with. Here it is one more time. Prayer is a comfort to God's people, but what if I don't see evidence that it changes anything? Prayer is a comfort to God's people, but what if I don't see evidence that it changes anything? Now, it's important for us to note here as we continue on this morning that suffering does not and will not come from God, at least not directly. All suffering is a scourge manufactured by sin always. Suffering is often the natural consequence of sin, 
and God's judgment on sin. And God will certainly use suffering that he did not cause nor did he choose to mold his own into the divine image bearers he always intended. We are all created to image God and represent him on the earth, every human being who ever lived and walked on this earth. For example, God did not create or intend cancer of any kind. Pediatric or otherwise. God did not create cerebral palsy or automobile crashes or heart attacks or Huntington's or Parkinson's diseases. God did not create tyrants or war or civilian casualties or gun violence. God does not cause child abuse, spousal, spousal abuse, clergy abuse, serial killers, narco-trafficking, or any inconceivable inhumane thing done by humans to humans. God is good, right, true, and altogether holy and righteous. We could go on, couldn't we? Yes, we could, and for a while. But I won't, at least not for now. I just have two points on this point as we continue on into our text. And here it is. Number one, God often gets blamed for these and more diversions from his good, right, true, just, and perfect will. He, he, he often, perhaps I could even say usually, gets blamed for these. If not causing them, then not preventing them. However... Though God did not intend sin or any of its consequences, he has dealt with both decisively, effectively, eternally in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And secondly, God will use any and all of these natural consequences of sin and more for our good, and that is both for our individual good, but also for our collective good and for his glory. God will win out. Now, all of this comports perfectly with what we have in our passage from Psalm 55, which is fundamentally a prayer to Almighty God asking for his intervention in a representative sample of situations that human beings might encounter and do encounter in this world. And apparently, the psalmist, who in this case is David, has experienced or was experiencing them all perhaps even at the same time. Here, King David deals with just about every sort of situation that a believer might encounter in a life of faith. Let's look at it in the time we have remaining to us this morning. Once again, Psalm 55, beginning with verse 1. And I'd like for us to think as we look at these first few verses, these first three verses, Think, think about this. It, it is a simple request that we have here in these first three verses. A simple request offered in hope and humility. That's important. For God's deliverance from distraction. I love the way this begins because this is where I find myself a lot. A simple request offered in hope and humility for God's deliverance from distraction. Verses 1 through 3. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. 
This is a pretty good place for us to begin. Last week we talked about beginning with the sovereignty of God. We, we talked about starting with the character of God, the praise of God. These acknowledgments put us in a good position and posture to then come before him with our requests. And so here David, moving into prayer based on the relationship that he has had with God the Father, Yahweh, um, Elohim, Adonai, he, he calls them all three of these in this passage from a very early age. And so he begins his prayer, give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. And, and this, this is, once again, in the form of an imperative, a command. Nobody commands God, right? But he's, he's urgently requesting God's attention. Now, if we've had kids, we know exactly what this looks like. When they come to us urgently petitioning us for attention because they have a need now. This is David coming to his Heavenly Father in the same way. Verse 2. I am restless and my com in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy. Now, that's a very interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Because of the noise of the enemy. What enemy is he talking about? Well, it could be he could be in the middle of, of, a, of a battle and the enemy may be making a bunch of noise to intimidate and scare and distract. Maybe that's possible. There's, there's no indication in the rest of this psalm that that is the setting. I think rather he's hearing those, as Bill Clinton put it one time, if I can mention Bill Clinton in this congregation, uh, the negative nabobs of negativity. You remember that? What a great... Uh, phrase that is. David is asking, asking the Lord to deliver him from distraction. I'm hearing these noises and it's, it, it's, it's confusing me. It's distracting me. And as I'm distracted, I'm not able to do what I am supposed to do as your child because of the opposition or the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. He's hearing these voices. He knows that they are not from the Lord, and he is asking the Lord to give him some peace. A simple request offered in hope and humility for God's deliverance from distraction. We would do well to say often a prayer like this and wait for God's deliverance. Now... I said a prayer in hope and humility. Let's just note that all true prayer begins in faith, hope, and humility. All of it. Why are we praying if we don't hope? Why are we praying if we don't believe? Why are we praying if we, if we are coming to God pridefully rather than humbly? No, we come to God in humility and in hope. And the faith that we have, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 is, God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. 
And without such faith, the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. So all true prayer begins in faith, hope, and humility. Faith that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Hope that God may give or protect or deliver or relent or whatever it is that we're coming to him to ask. And the humility to accept his response, whatever it may be. And that's probably the hardest one of the three. In humility to accept the response that God gives and to accept it before we know what it will be. We're entering into prayer here. And in the end, we're leaving it with him. There's a second thing that we see in this text. It's in verses 4 through 8, I believe. And it's an urgent request. An urgent request offered in terrified faith. It's from faith, but he's in terror for deliverance from death, the fear of death, and the fear of the unknown. Yes, it is possible for a born-again Christian who is growing in faith to be terrified. And it's okay. What is our response? Go to the one who gives us peace. Verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. He's in trouble. Deep trouble. He thinks he's going to die. I, some of my family and friends, and some of you have prayed for more than 20 years that my son Christopher be delivered from the scourge of mental illness. I have no doubt that there are other similar situations among us here this morning over the live stream. Well, it hasn't happened yet. You know that part of the question, we pray but we don't see any evidence that it does any good or that it's working? And it may never happen for him on this side of heaven. He's 38 years old. He's almost 39. He'll be 39 in December. And I may still get that long dreaded phone call one day. Any day. And I do realize that I'm not the only one in such a situation. But still, I don't understand it. I really don't. What's to understand about schizophrenia or its lesser cousin, bipolar disorder, bipolar schizoaffective disorder? Lacking such understanding, if, if we are to survive the journey and keep even our spirit-born joy, it's exceedingly even more important to give it over to God, who is merciful, wise, loving, and just. He alone knows the future, and he alone can make any sense out of it. Jeff Foxworthy. 
So this is an urgent request from David. It can be a model for us as well. Offered in terrified faith for deliverance from death, the fear of death, and the fear of the unknown. There's a third thing, a third helpful observation, I think, that we can make from this text. And it's an honest request offered in holy outrage. Holy outrage, what is that? Well, we'll look at it in a moment, but it's possible. Now, I have to say, I don't know. You, you, you've probably heard of the phrase righteous indignation, and people who use the phrase are usually people who are saying they're acting out of or they're speaking out of a righteous indignation, and they don't seem all that righteous to me when they're doing that. And I don't know that I've ever been righteously indignant. But there is something like a holy outrage, and David, as king, as citizen, as member of God's people, Israel, is expressing what I'm calling here a holy outrage and requesting, honestly, God's personal intervention in the general mayhem of the city that he is king over. If nothing else, this should move us to pray for our city, for our cities, wherever we reside. That includes, by the way, that we ought to pray for our civic government and do what we can, beginning here with praying and then with voting, because we have the wonderful privilege of voting where we live. We literally choose the leaders that lead us. That is rare in the history of humanity, and we don't appreciate it enough. So we pray and then we vote for leaders who will represent us well. Look with me at verses 9 and 11, then we'll jump to 15 and then 19b. Because I think all of these go together, actually. 9, 11, 9 through 11, destroy, O Lord. This is uh, here where we say, O Lord. Um, this is the... Hebrew term for Lord, Adonai, or actually my Lord. Destroy, O Lord. This is to be distinguished from Lord with the, all the, the uppercase letters. That's Yahweh, the personal name of God that we'll see in just a bit. Destroy, O Adonai. Lord, Adonai. Divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls. And iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. I believe we can jump to verse 15. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol, alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. And then 19b, it's set aside. It's, it's not really part of the stanza before it that, that ends with 19a. It's under the Selah, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. Because they do not change and do not fear God. This is David, the king over Jerusalem, lamenting the violence of the, the city in which he lives and calls home. And he's asking the Lord to bring judgment in a very real sense upon his fellow citizens because they themselves are violent, dismissing of God and God's word and God's ways. It's a terrified, or, or rather a, a, a holy outrage, 
an honest request for God's personal intervention in the general mayhem of the city. Now, I want you to notice verses 9 through 11. In, in my Bible, at least, and probably in yours, they're set apart basically in three to five verse stanzas here. But you'll see that verse 15 stands alone. And then the second half of verse 19, what I'm calling 19b, is separated from what came before it, as well as there's a, there's a, there's a pause in between, Selah. Now, nobody is really sure what Selah means. Possibly a pause. Possibly, in this case, a musical interlude. We did see, Kate did read the, the introductory material to the choir master with stringed instruments. A maskil, which was probably a type of music, we've lost the meaning or the form of it, but a maskil was probably a, a type of, of, of music. And so whenever we see in the Psalms, and we see them uh, often, and I would say probably in at least half, perhaps more of the Psalms, we see the strange thing to the side italicized, Selah. Well, it probably is either a pause, if it's not set to music, or a musical interlude. And then verse 19b stands by itself, because they do not change and do not fear God. Well, he's, he's not talking about that in the first part of verse 19. He's talking about God. So I'm suggesting that these sections, verses 9 through 11, verse 15, 19b, they're all kind of part of a running conversation that he's having with the Lord. He, he's, he's coming out of what he's praying about now, and he's saying, oh, and by the way, back to that prayer that I just prayed about those in the city that are, you know, wreaking mayhem. And then he goes back to his prayer. So this is an honest request offered in holy outrage, outrage in, these, in these verses. And then the next thing, from verse 12 to 14, and then we'll pick it up again in verse 20 and 21. Those go together. They're, they're apparently the same topic. And this is a lament. This is probably the most deeply felt portion of the prayer. I know he's been terrified. I know he's, he's been offering uh, a prayer in hope and faith, but, but this is probably the one emotionally speaking, that probably gets him the most. And, and, and I'm just calling this a lament offered in deep sadness and grief for God's comfort in the midst and after, aftermath of personal and perhaps even national betrayal. He's lamenting with deep grief over betrayal. It may be a personal betrayal, and there seems to be an aspect of that. But in the second half, it, it may be national betrayal as well. And, and he being king, a personal betrayal and a national betrayal could be the same betrayal, right, against him. Betrayal is at the heart of sin, all sin really. And we should both pray against it and we should ask the Lord to protect us from it, both from committing it, being the betrayer, and from suffering its grief, being the betrayed. We are rarely more like Jesus than when we are standing by a beleaguered friend or refusing to betray when the opportunity presents. Let me say that again. We are rarely more like Jesus 
when we are standing by a beleaguered friend or refusing to betray when the opportunity presents. And we certainly are no, no, no less like Jesus than when we betray. A spouse, a family, a friend, an employer, a church, our Lord Jesus himself. So this is, this is big, and David here is experiencing it. Let's see what the text says from verse 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who seeks or who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you. He's not talking to, to God here. He's talking about someone God knows. And there are speculations about it, but nobody is sure who this is referring to. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. And then he, he, he steps out of it for a moment. Then he comes back into it in verse 20. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. This is a deep, close, personal, and perhaps even a national betrayal that David is dealing with here and asking for God's comfort and perhaps even his wisdom and guidance in the midst and aftermath of this betrayal. Well, there's just two more. If I had told you at the beginning I had a six-point sermon, you would have probably crumpled in your seats. But it's moving pretty quickly, so we're doing okay. This is number five. The fifth observation that I think is helpful to us here this morning from this text, and I think it's all helpful, is this. A declaration of faith, hope, and trust. Remember, we're talking about prayer here, but in our prayer, in David's prayer here, as a model for us, a declaration of faith, hope, and trust in the God who saves, the God who hears our prayers, the God who protects and delivers us, even protects and delivers us from death. Yet though he dies, yet he will live. As Jesus put it. Let's look at it, verse 16. But I call to God. So in the midst of immediately following uh, the betrayal and, immediate, uh, and then continuing on with his conversation about the city, he says, but I, in, in, in contrast to what is, what, is, what is going on here by others, but I call to God and the Lord Yahweh, the personal name of God, will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. 
So whether that battle is a spiritual battle, a personal battle, or an actual physical, as we say uh, today, kinetic warfare, he knows that the Lord is with him, and it gives him confidence to fight the battle. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old. Such declarations acknowledge that this life is not all there is. Indeed, if anything, this life is the precursor to eternal life. This life is not meaningless. It, it is full of meaning, eternal meaning, but it is not all there is and it is not the end. So while we want to be about something real and important and meaningful in this life, we also understand that there's more, much more to come. And David, on the basis of that faith, hope, and trust, can enter into the battle knowing that he is the Lord's. And so can we. Sixth and final thing. Here we have a proclamation of the goodness, faithfulness, and justice of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, with ultimate trust and confidence in Him. If we do not believe wholeheartedly and without apology that the one true and living God is altogether good, altogether right, altogether true, altogether wise, altogether holy, then we will not prevail in prayer. Verses 22 and, uh, twenty-one and twenty-three. Cast your burden on the Lord, Yahweh. So, This appears that David is talking to himself. This is what we call self-talk, which is very helpful psychologically, telling ourselves the right thing to do so that we'll be more inclined to do it. Or perhaps this is the Spirit intervening into his prayer to speak to David and also to speak to us in the midst of this, what is otherwise a model prayer as his people. I don't know which it is. I like the idea of both of them. And there seems not to be any indication in the text. I know that, that uh, commentators, they, they make a choice. Usually they'll, they'll give you the options and then they'll make a choice. I'm not sure we have to here because I think he's, this is both to David and to us. Cast your burden on the Lord Yahweh and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Does this mean he'll never permit the righteous to be sick? No. Does this mean that he'll never permit the righteous to be killed? No. This means, quite simply, as we see in the New Testament, that all of God's children in the Spirit are sealed by his Spirit until the day of redemption. We cannot be lost. We cannot be moved. We are his forever. So cast your burden on the Lord Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Verse 23, but you, O Elohim, you, O God, 
will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust you. That's the summary of the whole psalm. It's the point of the whole prayer. That no matter what's happening, no matter the situation, even if I die, but I will trust you. You. Now, I've left our central truth for last because it really does reflect this whole series on prayer, including this morning's sermon and the thoroughly biblical Christian idea from Psalm 55 that God hears our prayers, God responds to our prayers, and God will ultimately deliver us, that is, eternally, even if not temporally, from those terrible things, those awful people and those unbearable situations that we tend often to pray about. And we should. David, more than anyone else in the Bible, seems to be completely uninhibited in his prayer to the Lord. So should we. So here it is, the central truth of our message and a summary statement of our series, which you have printed there in your bulletins on, on the inside, lower left corner, the conclusion. I've printed it there so that you have these to take away and you can process these further. More than any other value, virtue, virtue or outcome in the Christian life. I, I believe this with everything in me. More than any other value, virtue, or outcome in the Christian life. Biblical Christian prayer acknowledges, affirms, and surrenders. And by the way, this is going into prayer, not on the backside. This is going into prayer. Affirms, acknowledges, and surrenders to the goodness, love, wisdom, justice, and righteousness of God in Christ Jesus our forever sovereign and savior, watch this now, no matter our momentary circumstances and all of our circumstances are momentary, even if they last a lifelong, a, a lifetime on this earth, they are still momentary in comparison to eternity, no matter our momentary circumstances or those of our loved ones. One more time, more than any other value, virtue, or outcome in the Christian life, biblical Christian prayer acknowledges, affirms, and surrenders to the goodness, love, wisdom, justice, and righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, our forever sovereign and savior, no matter our momentary circumstances or those of our loved ones. That's the biblical Christian teaching on prayer. And so this has been the conclusion of our prayer, what makes a difference, what difference does it make? Many series on prayer by the same approximate title in our ongoing Biblical Christian Answers to our Serious Questions series, except that I added the caveat, you might have noticed, managing expectations.
I think probably there is more a need to manage our expectations concerning prayer than any other aspect of the Christian life. There's a lot of false teaching out there, a lot of false practice. Keep this in mind. God is never, ever, ever limited by your lack of faith. Never. Or mine. He is God. He can do and he will do whatever he wills in your life, in our congregation, whenever he does so. And he does include us. He, he invites us to join him. And usually the, the entry point to that joining him is prayer. But he can act whenever and however he wishes. And we do need and, and, and we will need and we must manage our ex expectations when it comes to prayer. Even though we have God's word and God's spirit, we do not know the mind of God. The spirit does. But we don't. And so we pray in humble faith, hope, and trust. And so to the question about prayer offered, I'm quite sure, in faith, hope, and trust, suggested to us by one or more of you, prayer is a comfort to God's people, but what if I don't see evidence that it changes anything? I say this, pray anyway. Pray with even more faith. Pray with even more hope. Pray with even more trust. Just pray. And when we do, the difference that it makes, we might find, is more in us than in the circumstance about which we are praying or the person about which we are praying. So maybe that's God's point altogether. He does hear, he does respond to the prayers offered to him in the faith. And so we pray. Next Sunday, Pastor Yuri will provide a biblical Christian response to a question on the Holy Spirit, specifically the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is it? When is it? Who's it for? I do hope to see you right back here in a week's time. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we once again come to the end of another worship gathering. We still have communion to share together and with you, uh, but I want to pray specifically for this hearing of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to believe and the wisdom to hope and the discernment to trust in you and your word and your will and your ways even when all else seems to go against them when all else seems to go against you when all else seems to go against us. And help us, whether we see any change or not, to pray. Why? Because Jesus did. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I just want these to be the last words we hear as we close out this series on prayer, 
they are uh, as, as much as we possibly could have, I think, um, depended on the words of the Lord while he was teaching, as we have recorded here in the Gospels, and, and so we finish that way also. Matthew 10, verses 26 to 33, the word of our Lord Jesus. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. But I tell you in the dark, say in the light. Or what I, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Lord, thank you for this warning and promise. Help us not to be afraid to be your people. Help us not to be afraid to follow Jesus anywhere he goes, anywhere he leads, and to depend upon your provision for our every need according to your grace in glory. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us in Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.